0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our latest podcast in a series of the criminal cases. It was the early 1960s in a town on the outskirts of Manchester. Here everyone belonged to the working class. Labourers who had migrated from all over England arrived in huge numbers from Scotland and Ireland to flee from the economic crisis and lured by many factories that were offering employment in the industrial region of northwest of England. troubling socio-economic period, mysterious abduction and murder of children had begun making the headlines. Between July 1963 and October 1965, five children, including teens aged 10 to 17 years old, had been sexually assaulted, atrociously mutilated, and their remains were buried in Saddleworth Moor, a sinister and gloomy chain of moors that formed a major part of the area's landscape. The long investigation led by the Manchester Police Department, supported by the entire civilian community, had dominantly put the spotlight on two moral and demonic personalities. A couple who had never let anything get in the way of satisfying this most wild basic instincts. Moira Hindley, a charming blonde with Merlin Monroe pretensions and her companion Ian Brad, an elegant young man. At the end of several investigations, recreations and testimonies, Great Britain finally discovered the sordid and criminal tale of two maniacs who together devoid of any humanity and capable of the worst. Moira Hindley would trap the victim and Ian Brady would violate them sexually and kill them. From then on, the duo came to be known as the Moore's Murderers. What follows is their story. On October 7, 1965, At Wardlebrook Avenue, a little neighbourhood in Gorton, north of Manchester. It was 5am. A thick fog covered everything in its path. A police car picked up a young couple hiding behind a telephone booth and took them to the headquarters. The young man had revelations for them. Some were very serious. He couldn't tell them everything over the telephone. He was too frightened. In fact, he even had a pocket knife which he brought from home to defend himself just in case. His wife was livid, her arms folded, she trembled and smoked cigarette after cigarette in an attempt to calm herself. An hour later, at the Hyde Police Headquarters, they met Inspector Bob Talbot and gave their statement. The man called himself David Smith and his wife Maureen Hindley Smith. On the previous day, David had inadvertently witnessed a shocking murder. Upon returning home, he wanted to remain silent and protect the culprits. But it was too disturbing for him to keep it a secret. He didn't want to become an accomplice and so he told his wife everything. Right down to the smallest details. Maureen made him some tea mixed with brandy which he drank in one gulp. But he didn't feel any better so he took a shower and had then decided to call the police. Which was the reason for his presence in their headquarters at that moment. I was there waiting just outside the front door for about 10-15 to minutes then I heard a horrible scream, very loud, high-pitched, like that of a woman's. My sister-in-law called me. Dave, Dave, come give me a hand. When I entered the living room, I saw a young man on the sofa dying. His legs were spread and Ian Brady was on top of him with an axe in his hand. There was blood everywhere. Who is Ian Brady? He is my sister-in-law's laws fiance Then later, Ian violently struck the boy in the head and he cried out one last time. I still have the sound of the impact in my head. A terrible sound of broken bones and blood spurting. The police officer lit a cigarette for David Smith, who accepted it and drew several puffs. Go on, said Inspector Bob Talbot. The boy was too heavy to carry. They first wanted to put him in the van. Ian hot-tied him with electric cables. He asked me to carry him, but I couldn't either. He weighed a ton. So Moira suggested rolling up the body in a plastic tarp and dragging it to the guest room waiting. Did you know the name of the victim? No, stammered Smith. I've never seen him in the neighborhood or hanging out with Ian before. Why did they want to put him in the van? To go bury him at Saddleworth Moor. That's what they always did. That's what they always did? that was only the beginning of a long and challenging investigation and the end of a terrible criminal tale, which the city of Manchester had never seen before. It had been a truly sordid organized hunt that lasted close to two years uninterrupted, which targeted children and teenagers of both sexes, who disappeared one after another without leaving a trace. In their wake, They left the pain of their families as well as the disbelief and inability of the police to solve the mystery of these unexplained disappearances. In this working-class city of England's northwest, where parents were often absent because of working in factories, children were left on their own most of the time and spent their days outside when they had no school, without any supervision and with no cause for concern. Besides, everyone knew each other in the Anglo-Irish community of Wardlebrook. The black brick houses were all clustered together, laundry hanging side by side in shared yards and privacy was non-existent. The merchants knew everyone's name by heart and togetherness prevailed. What was good enough for one child was good enough for everyone else's. Basically, in Wardlebrook, everyone sailed in the same boat. In those days, incidents of pedophilia and childhood kidnapping did not often make the headlines and people rarely spoke openly about it. Lay people and the media were both quite conservative. As a result of this peaceful mentality, the more murderers were able to act without ever having to worry about getting caught. They were driven by a desire to do harm merely for their own pleasure. Together, the pair had come to symbolize the darkest aspects of this period of transition gratuitous violence and a defined taste for the wildest depravity. At first, they appeared to be a normal young couple right out of a rock and roll album cover. The woman sported a platinum blonde bouffant, which was up to date with the latest fashion trends, while the man looked like a member of the Beatles, always well-groomed and wearing a tie at all times. Yet beyond their external appearance, there was something strikingly unhealthy and morbid about these two people. Their gaze. Ian Brady had an empty and impersonal one, whereas Moira Hindley's stare was cold, sharp and fixed. How and when did they meet for the first time? And when did they sign their blood pact? To find these answers, it requires looking back into the past in order to understand the inner functioning of these two diabolical people and comprehend their terrifying tale. Moira Hindley was born on July 23, 1942, in Crumswell, a disadvantaged suburbs of Manchester. At the time of her birth, Robert Hindley, called Bob, was absent because he had been away in combat at the front with His Majesty's army. The baptismal ceremony, which had held a week later, took place at the Catholic chapel of St. Francis without the presence of her father. Consequently, the young Moira spent the first few years of her life with her mother, Nellie, and her grandmother in a small two-room house in Gorton, one of the working-class cities in the region. At the end of the Second World War, her father had returned home, bitter and traumatized by the horror of combat. He subsequently began drinking excessively in order to ease his suffering. The Hindley family lived quite precariously and violence prevailed at home. Bob constantly struck his wife and little Moira often witnessed fights between her parents. Bob, who was Irish and who had immigrated to England in the 1930s, taught his daughter how to fight at an early age, how to throw punches, how to bite and how to gain upper hand over potential adversaries. Once when they were playing together, a young neighbor had cloyed Moira's face and knocked her down to the ground. In tears, the girl ran to her father to show him her bloodied, scratched face. Bob Hindley didn't offer his daughter any consolation. On the contrary, he sent Moira back to her aggressor and ordered her to do the same thing. And she did, by taking revenge and by biting her young neighbor's cheek. She had earned her father's praise. Quickly, Moira realized to survive in this environment. Everything had been taken by force and that kindness never achieved anything. In fact, right from the age 10, she gained a reputation as a brawler in the town of Gorton. All the children in the neighborhood dreaded her fits of rage and the precision of her punches. Even older and much more physically imposing boys as compared to her would also flee if she came rushing in their direction. In 1946, the Hindleys had another little girl, Maureen. Her parents did not receive this unexpected birth well and it gradually pushed the family into a financial situation that was more precarious than it had ever been before. Bob, who was often drunk, had trouble keeping a job whenever he had one. Anything that he had managed to earn, he spent in the pubs where he was very generous with other customers and often paid for rounds even though his wife and children at home had nothing to eat. Unable to financially care for two children, the Hindleys agreed to send Moira to live with her maternal grandmother who lived in the next block and with whom she stayed for the rest of her childhood and adolescence. Moira's grandmother allowed her to skip school whenever she wanted and never said anything when she got home late than her curfew. Unsupervised and never reprimanded by her elders, the teenage girl felt like she was on cloud nine and took full advantage of it. During the summer of 1957, a neighbor and one of Moira's childhood best friends, a 13-year-old boy named Michael Higgins, had asked her to join him to spend the day at an abandoned reservoir. He was dependent on her to give him some lessons in the water because she was a very good swimmer. The two teens had a very close relationship, almost like siblings. Moira had a lot of affection for Michael and thought it was quite significant that they both had the same initials, M and H. One day, however, Moira declined Michael's offer and opted to go shopping with the girlfriend instead. Unable to stay afloat by himself, Michael Higgins drowned in the reservoir's water as his young friends watched. When his body was retrieved, he was white as cotton and his extremities were dark blue. His tragic and unexpected death had a long-term effect on Moira and weighed heavily on her conscience. For a long time, she was convinced that she was partly responsible for Michael's death. She truly believed that if she had been there on that fateful day, instead of going shopping, Mike would have still been alive today. This first traumatic experience in her teenage years brought her close to her faith. She started going to church regularly, to catechism classes, communion, and was confirmed in 1958 under her first name, Veronica. For a short time, Hindley had even dreamt of having a religious career, but she quickly abandoned the idea when given other opportunities. With an urgent need for money, she dropped out of school and started to work. First, she found a job as a messenger, then a dress designer, a seamstress, a dog groomer, and then she washed hair in a hair salon, and she also worked as a waitress in a cafe. In 1960, she found her first real job. She was hired by an electrical engineering company. She immediately seized this opportunity, which greatly surpassed her expectations. However, since she lacked a diploma and had no real secretarial skills, she was given very subordinate tasks, watching the kettle, making sandwiches and serving tea to all company employees during tea breaks. Sometimes there were several breaks in the same day. The rest of the time, she spent delivering mail to the offices. True to her assertive and fierce demeanor, she knocked on her boss's door and asked him to assign her some serious duties. Her boss agreed to give her a chance if she could live up to the task. As requested, she was given serious tasks, writing and typing administrative correspondence, making a few phone calls, organizing files, running errands, and more importantly, she was required to serve tea only occasionally. It was obvious that Moira Hindley had a slight advantage that set her apart from others. In a slightly old-fashioned and outdated bureaucratic environment in which she worked, Moira was a bit of a sensation with her youth and her vivacity. She was elegant and always well-groomed. Tall, dark-haired, athletic, and had incredible blue eyes, full of determination. She was talkative and often very funny. People adored her unanimously. When she received her first paycheck, Moira misplaced it in the subway and returned to work the next day in tears as she recounted her misfortune. Her co-workers were so moved by her story that they collected donations to return her entire salary. However, when the company went bankrupt and laid off its staff, Moira Hindley was forced to leave just like everyone else. A few weeks later, she found a job as a typist in a textile company. She often spent many hours in the pubs after work and had difficulty keeping with her frantic pace of her new life. Her new boss, however, was very demanding and authoritative. She worked at the new company for six months and was eventually fired for repeated absence. During the same year, she was hired a third time as an assistant manager at Millward's, a design and furnishings business. Heinle, who was 20 years old at the time, wanted to assert her independence. She wanted to radically change her look. It was the middle of the turbulent 1960s where many women dared to wear short skirts, long hair, high-heeled leather boots, bouffant hairstyles, and fluorescent jackets. Myra, of course, was no exception to the rule, and so she pulled at all the stops. In the meantime, she returned to live with her parents and brazenly defied their authority by wearing increasingly provocative outfits. Her hairstyle had also undergone a transformation. She had traded her long black curls for shortcut, then she dyed her hair with hydrogen peroxide and gave herself regular rinses to give her hair a very sophisticated platinum sheen which subsequently accentuated the fairness of her face and highlighted blue color of her eyes. In the modest working class of Gorton, Hindley had begun to look like a true fashion diva. Her little sister, Maureen, quickly followed in her footsteps. Both of them wanted to break free of the latent working class mentality from their parents' authority and an atmosphere of misogyny. Moira was fearful of repeating the same pattern as her mother, marrying a violent alcoholic and finding herself with three or four kids. She was willing to do anything to avoid that fate. After having a string of boyfriends and other dead-end affairs, in late 1961, Moira met a very unique young man with a strong Scottish accent and the external appearance of an old-time crooner, Ian Bradley. She quickly fell in love with him. Ian, on the other hand, was very self-involved and completely ignored her. The young woman watched him every day and never failed to note in her diary. Like a love-struck young woman. Ian looked at me today. Ian smiled at me today. I'm really sad today. Ian didn't notice me. Is he going to offer to take me for a ride on his motorcycle one day? Ian smiled at me and spoke to me today. I was floating on a cloud. He was looking good, like he always does. Oh my god, he's so handsome. At first, the meeting between the Glasgow's bad boy and the little blonde typist from Gorton was quite platonic. Ian was openly bisexual and had a slight preference for boys or girls. For him, Moira was perhaps nothing more than a fling, a romance for a few days and maybe a few weeks at the most, but he was wrong. The two soon became inseparable, going to the pub, going out for dinner at fish and chip stands and to the movies. In fact, they were often joined by Moira's little sister Maureen Hindley and the latter's boyfriend, the young and the rebellious David Smith who was highly impressionable and even intimidated by the flamboyant and bookish young Ian Brady. The two couples were a sensation. They symbolized a new British youth, in love with freedom, independent and seeking to have as much fun as possible. Exposed to the influence of the two boys, the Hindley sisters started smoking their first cigarettes before developing a strong addiction themselves. When they weren't working, the four lovers spent a lot of time at the girl's grandmother's house. They started hanging out there more and more to eat, smoke a ton of cigarettes, drink beer, dance and listen to records that David Smith borrowed from friends. Amore was captivated by her new love interest. One thing was certain, Ian Brady was not like any of the other boys that she had hung out with. He had a mysterious quality, like some kind of dandy. When the latest trends was to wear leather jackets and pompadour hairstyles like Elvis Presley, he sported a mature and classic look like that of an ideal son-in-law, always dressed to the nines and wearing a three-piece suit, white shirt and black tie. More importantly, Ian Brady could have passed for a scholar. He was able to recite entire poems in German, by Goethe and Schiller, French books like Century from Enlightenment and even started studying Latin. In short, he was what people today might have referred to as a geek. Yet he stubbornly kept his past a secret, vaguely mentioning his origins, simply telling visitors that he came from Cardiff in Wales and that he had come to England to work as a storekeeper while still hoping that one day he could resume his university studies, ideally at Oxford. In truth, Ian Brady was born in Glasgow, Scotland on January 2, 1938. His mother, Maggie Stewart, was a barmaid and still single when he was born. The child would never know his biological father. His mother always assured him that he was a journalist and that his family name was Brady. As she worked nights in the pub and also due to her lack of financial resources, Maggie Stewart had no other choice but to leave her son in the care of a couple of neighbors. The Sloans, who were already parents of four. Ian adopted their surname and became one of their children by proxy. Beginning in early childhood, he began to display a morbid pleasure in torturing animals and mistreating children who were younger than him. Later, like Moira Hindley, he had become the terror of other children in his neighborhood of the Gowen in Glasgow. When he was a teenager, his criminal records was already quite extensive since he had already spent two years in detention center for having stolen money and a watch from his adoptive parents. Then, he committed several burglaries and even tried to kill his girlfriend, simply because she danced with another boy at a ball. In those days, he worked as a labourer in a shipyard and dreamt of going far, leaving the instability of Scotland in the early 1950s and to travel all over the world to the United States and maybe even to Australia. Ian would never have the time to put his plans into action as he was soon about to become consumed by his demons. He appeared nine times before the courts for various offences. After his final release from prison, he moved in with his mother to help pay for his household expenses. He found a job as a butcher's assistant. A short time later, he quit and left Scotland for good and moved to England. Manchester, a famous working-class city that was on the rise, was where he decided to settle on December 10, 1957. He quickly found a job as a career, then a storekeeper, and rented a small room at a family home. As a good-looking boy who was always impeccably dressed and groomed, he quickly caught the attention of women in the neighborhood, who were used to rude, macho men. But Ian Brady had a little interest in these working-class women in curlers and cheap plastic overcoats. He rebuffed their advances politely with obvious indifference. Generally speaking, he wasn't really interested in women, except for his peroxide blonde who had been eyeing him for some time now and whom he had ignored up until recently. She seemed to stand out from the crowd, but he would first need to mold her before he tried anything more. Brady began outlining his plan. As his relationship with Moira progressed, the young Scot focused on improving her cultural knowledge. To do that, he regularly took her to the library and introduced her to the work of Marquis de Sade the German literature, and most importantly to the manifesto, Mein Kampf, written by Hitler. They both attended the first screening of the film, Nuremberg Trials, at the cinema. Ian Brady was a Nazi lover. He was fascinated by their cruelty and never bothered to hide his extreme right learnings from anyone. Moira Heinle, who had rarely opened a book in her life, literally plunged into Brady's delirium and started developing a racist and xenophobic ideas she was fascinated by his overall knowledge and his scholarship. David Smith was also quite captivated by the Scot, who had become a mentor and a source of inspiration. For Ian Brady, what appealed to him most about his girlfriend was undoubtedly her independence unlike the other girls from Gorton who only dreamt about settling down and starting a family. Moira wanted absolutely no part of that life. She refused to repeat the same pattern as her mother Nellie or her grandmother women who were subjugated all their lives, who had to take beatings without complaining, who had to tolerate the ill-temper of their alcoholic, destitute husbands. In early 1963, for the first time Ian Brady shared his plan with Moira to commit murder. Incapable of acting alone, he asked her for help. She would be the one to lure to attract potential victim while he would take care of killing them. He started talking about committing the perfect murder. Moira, far from being offended, was almost flattered by the invitation. In the days that followed, Ian borrowed a novel from the library where the two protagonists were teenagers who murdered a child. He ordered the young girl to read some of the less important sections in order to get some inspiration for their plan, she compiled. That same evening, Moira Hindley wrote in her diary. In just a few months, he convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, that the moon was made of cheese, and that the sun rose in the west, and I would have believed him.
2: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: On weekends, the couple traveled all over the Manchester area for hours on a motorcycle, joined by Moira's little dog, Puppet. One day, while they were in between the boroughs of Oldham and Kirkley's on the highway, they discovered a spot, a frightening and dismal place, a gigantic moor made of pleat and dense vegetation, Saddleworth Moor. Ian was almost moved by the sight. It reminded him of the windy, desolated countryside of the Scotland of his birth. As for Moira, she was completely captivated by the moor, its immensity and many hilly valleys as if buried underground. It was entirely possible to get lost there and never be seen again. But that was precisely the point. The location met Ian's expectations. It was perfect in every way. In July of the same year, they were ready at last. They signed their blood pact with the hope of causing as much trouble as possible. Their first victim had already been selected. Pauline Reed, a 15-year-old girl who was a childhood friend of Maureen, Moira's little sister, On the afternoon of July 12, 1963, Moira approached her in her minivan and asked her to go with her to Saddleworth Moor to look for a glove that she had lost the night before. Pauline Reed saw no reason not to believe her and got into the vehicle with her. Once they had arrived at their destination, they were immediately joined by Ian Brady who traveled there by motorcycle. Moira made the introductions and Pauline still suspected nothing. On the pretext of looking for a flashlight in the car, Moira left the teenager alone with Ian and fled to sit by herself in the vehicle. A few moments later, Moira heard her boyfriend calling out, asking her to help him bury the body of poor Pauline, completely undressed, raped and with her throat slit. Upon their return, that evening the two killers quietly made their way to the pub to drink a few beers and listen to music before going home to bed. The very next day, Pauline's parents reported their daughter's disappearance. The police promised to investigate. They questioned everyone in the neighborhood, even Moira who had stated that she had not seen her sister's friend in a few days. Furthermore, Pauline was not the kind of girl to run away or leave the house without telling her parents. Without any additional clues or witnesses, the investigation was soon dropped. Five months later, on November 23, 1963, Moira accosted another child from the neighborhood. The young John Kilbride, who was 12 years at the time. She asked him to help her carry her shopping bags and promised to pay him with a soda and some ice cream once they reached her home. John Kilbride, who knew Myra Henley very well, accepted, lured as a child often are, by the simple promise of a reward. John lived alone with his mother, a laborer separated from her husband, who waged a difficult battle against alcoholism and depression. John, her only son, was the apple of her eye. He was such a helpful, kind, and lovable boy. The fate the evil couple had planned for him came to its conclusion at the Dark Moor. Like Pauline Reed, young John Kilbride had been left alone with Ian Brady, who threw himself on the boy before raping him and strangling him with the sock. All this while, Moira was quietly smoking a cigarette inside her van. Once again, the couple gave themselves a cooling off period from their sadomasochistic sexual practices. For the first time, Ian, who had only been attracted to men, had begun to feel desire for his evil woman whose instincts were as deprived as his own. They were a perfect match. To lend a semblance of normalcy to their lives and not to raise suspicions among their friends and neighbors. The two criminals continued to work, go out together, and visit Maureen Hindley, who had recently married David Smith. The newly married couple had moved into a small apartment close to where the Hindleys lived on Wardlebrook Avenue. At the end of May 1963, Ian once again pressed Moira to find him another victim. He had an urgent need to kill. She complied without being asked. In fact, she too had the same idea herself. On the pleasant and warm evening of June 16, 1963, Moira crossed paths with little Keith Bennett at the weekly market. The 12-year-old little boy simply adored sweets. Moira had promised to pay him 2 shillings if he agreed to carry her shopping bags. Keith instantly agreed. Once they were in the car, which Moira had rented beforehand, they drove non-stop until they reached Saddleworth Moor. But things were different this time. Keith Bennett, despite his young age, since that something strange was going on. He realized that Moira had lied to him about the reward of two shillings. He started crying loudly, calling out for his mother and begging to go home. Angered by the turn of events, Ian dragged the boy by force into the peat field while Moira remained standing guard in the distance. Keith was raped and strangled with the cord. The couple then buried his body and disappeared in their van before making their way back home. On December 26, 1964, during the Christmas season, Ian and Moira discovered a new victim, a little 10-year-old girl named Leslie Ann Downey. The couple spotted her alone in an amusement park. It was obvious that she was unaccompanied. As they approached her, they pretended to drop their packages on the ground and asked Leslie Ann to give them a hand to pick it up. The same strategy which they had used earlier. The young girl followed them to their van to drop off their packages. Ian offered her some ice cream to thank her and insisted Moira to take her home. The child agreed. She went with him without suspecting the ambush plan for her. Once they reached their apartment, they took the young girl up to their room. Leslie Ann became frightened and asked to leave. Ian gagged her with a cloth to prevent her from screaming and waking up the whole neighborhood. Then he stripped her, took several photos of her in suggestive poses raped her, and then asked Moira to prepare his bath. When she returned a few minutes later, she found the child lying on the bed. Ian had also recorded the child's screams and pleas for help on a tape recorder. Early the next morning, the couple buried Leslie and Downey's body in Saddleworth Moor. They waited another 10 months before committing their next crime. Ian now wanted to hunt down teenagers who were a bit more masculine. He was tired of kids and their screams. Places like markets, parks, and fairs were crowded with people and they could eventually get caught one day. So they decided to set their sight on a more discreet location where they had never gone before to stalk their prey, Manchester Central Station. On the evening of October 6, 1965, Ian and Myra parked in front of the train station and were on the lookout for their next victim. They saw passengers who had taken the shuttle leaving, clearly there were very few people around. But suddenly, Ian grabbed Moira's hand and pointed towards the exit. That guy over there, wait here, I'm going after him. He said in an unambiguous tone. Edward Evans, who took the shuttle every day between Oldham and Gorton, walked ahead without noticing the pair. Ian approached him, introduced himself and made friends with the young man. Edward Evans, 17 years old and probably homosexual, accepted Ian's invitation to have a drink with him at his house to possibly do something more if the conditions were favourable. In the car, Ian introduced Moira Hindley as a sister. Handshakes were enthusiastically exchanged and all three drove off. Once they arrived home, Moira, at her boyfriend's request, went to get her brother-in-law David Smith and asked him to wait at the front door and not to enter until Ian called for him. David Smith didn't understand the rules of this game but had decided to play along. He lit a cigarette and waited patiently. Inside things had begun to worsen. Edward Evans, aware that he had stumbled into an ambush, started to fight back against Ian Bradley. At first, he had the advantage because of his muscular strength and imposing physical stature. In the meantime, Moira was alone in the kitchen with her dog Puppet and listened behind the door as the fighting continued. It was only upon hearing Evan's terrifying screams that she started yelling and calling for David Smith. Dave! Dave! Come quickly! We need a hand! When he entered the apartment, Smith discovered the horrific scene. There were bits of skin everywhere, blood splattered all over the couch, the floor and even the walls. Moira, livid, then gave him a bucket of water mixed with bleach and ammonia and ordered him to help her clean everything up. David Smith noticed that while they were cleaning, his sister-in-law casually hummed a song as she removed and replaced the couch cushions. When they finished, David helped carry Edward Evans' body to the guest room because he was too heavy to carry all the way to the van. They had to make it disappear as quickly as possible. Ian later offered him a beer and suggested that he spend the night at the house. Terrified, Smith refused, claiming that he had never left his wife alone at night. He left them about 3 a.m. and rushed home to tell Maureen all about it. Two hours later, armed with a knife, the husband and the wife found a telephone booth and called the police. David Smith asked them to come and pick them up and take them to the headquarters to file a statement. The next day, following the declaration made by the sole witness to Edward Evans' murder, 20 police officers were sent to Moira Hindley and Ian Bradley's residence. The police decided to proceed cautiously without alarming them. They asked for permission to search the house for a routine check related to a burglary. Law enforcement immediately began to search every room in the apartment. They soon found the body of Edward Evans wrapped in a plastic tarp in the guest room. The couple had planned to bury him in the moor that evening. Following this discovery, Ian Brady was arrested and taken to the headquarters. Moira, who no one had yet suspected, was released after initial interrogation. Over the next few days, the police conducted a search of the house which had been the stage for so many horrific spectacles. While going through the couple's bedroom, they came across plans drawn on paper, probably by Ian that looked like plans of a burglary. In the sketches, the police had also noted some mysterious initials as well as a train ticket from Central Station dated October 6. Round trip from Oldham, Manchester, a ticket that belonged to Edward Evans. On the bed's box springs, the police found a red leather suitcase containing photos that the couple had taken at Saddleworth Moor. Pornographic photos of children as well as women's undergarments, but most importantly, some strange audio cassettes. The content on the tapes included the last sounds of little Leslie and Downey, and the police were able to distinctly hear Hindley and Brady's loud voices covering the screams of the young girl. One of the police officers recalled that David Smith mentioned something strange during his deposition. Ian had often joked that the bodies of children were buried in the moors. With the photos of the couple found in the red suitcase, the police believed that they had finally identified the area to search. Without wasting any time, they quickly made their way to the moor. The search began the same night. Some reporters who had accompanied the police got goosebumps when they arrived on the premises. The place was vast, gloomy, on an incline and was densely vegetated. The entire moor was searched. We felt like we were walking on skeletons. All of us, including the investigators, were completely horrified," recalled an investigative reporter who had been present from the beginning of the inquiry. On October 10, 1965, the body of Leslie and Downey was found, followed by that of John Kilbride, 11 days later, who had disappeared in November 1963. The bodies of Pauline Reed, who disappeared in July 1963, and that of the young Keith Bennett, missing since June 1964, were never located. The trial for the Monsters of Moore commenced on April 6, 1966. To transport the pair from their respective prison cells, police patrols were forced to cover Ian and Moira in order to protect them from a possible attack from citizens. And with good reason, every time they stepped out of the police van, rocks were thrown at them from all directions. The residents of Manchester were in an uproar. As for England, the country was in shock. In its collective memory, there had never been such sordid crimes and assaults on children that involved a woman in partnership with a murderer. During the hearings, Hindley and Bradley pleaded not guilty. On May 6, 1966, the verdict was finally announced. Triple life imprisonment for the triple homicides of Leslie and Downey, John Kilbride and David Evans. Neither Brady nor Hindley admitted to the assaults and murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. By coincidence or a stroke of luck, at the last minute the couple escaped death penalty, which had been abolished in Great Britain a year earlier. Moira Hindley, incarcerated in Cookham Wood Prison for Women, died from pneumonia on November 15, 2002, after more than three decades behind bars. During her first months in detention, she had stopped dyeing her hair and reverted to the shade of brown that she originally had. She completed her studies and received her bachelor's degree in literature a few years later while still in prison. The day before she died, Moira, known as the most hated woman in the United Kingdom, had written a long letter to her lawyer where she explained in detail how she had been sexually mesmerized and mentally exploited by Ian Brady ever since their fateful meeting in the early 1960s. She insisted that Ian had drugged her more than once so he could manipulate her to do his bidding. As for Ian Brady, he continued to play a game of cat and mouse with investigative reporters. In 1985, he confessed to one of the double murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, whose bodies had never been recovered. A new inquiry had begun and painful memories were revived. A single unidentified body was found within the perimeter that Ian indicated, but it was neither that of Pauline nor Keith. In the early 2000s, Brady started publishing poems and pamphlets on the internet. He even published a paper book entitled The Gates to Janus, Serial Killing and its Analysis by Ian Brady. Upon its release, the book was pulled down from the shelves of old bookstores in Great Britain. At the age of 88, Ian Brady was placed in a psychiatric care unit for the elderly under his doctor's orders. The case of the murderer of the Moors remains to this day one of the most serious incidents of pedocriminality, much like that of the Dutro affair in Belgium. Of the two killers, Moira Hindley remains the most hated according to public opinion in Britain. Tom Radigan, a former citizen of Gorton and a child at the time of the Moore crimes occurred, remembers how he himself almost fell into the clutches of the evil couple. He describes Moira Hindley's charm, her extraordinary ability to lure children to do her will with simple promises of candy and lemonade. Our parents had always taught us not to trust strangers who were men, but never strangers who were women. Maybe that was a mistake. Recall Tom Radigan. Profiler and journalist David Holmes added that. Moira had this way of transforming an atrocious event into something banal as a way of distancing herself from the horror of her actions. Ever since she was a child, she lived in a familial climate where violence and wickedness were treated as commonplace and even rewarded. Brady had brought out the monster that had been lying dormant within her, without excusing her actions for a moment. I would have to say that she was a real product of her time and her education. The victims' families, united by their shared tragedy, continue to work together to answer letters and to give interviews on the subject. What is certain is that even 60 years after the event, the Moor has still not given up all its secrets. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.